Please turn with me in your Bibles to the eighth chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 8, and we will this morning be looking at verses 22 through 25. Luke 8, 22 through 25. Please give your careful attention to God's word. One day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him. James Rogers Fleming is an historian who wrote a book called Fixing the Sky, the Checkered History of Weather and Climate Control. I haven't read the book, why would I? But I did get a great quote from early in the book that says this, Human hubris is almost universal. There is this perennial desire to control. Human nature is to control, to seek control at all costs. And nothing so consistently day in and day out affects our lives than the weather. And every generation of human history has tried to control it. In ancient civilizations, they would offer animal sacrifices or even sometimes human sacrifices to the gods that they supposed controlled the weather. In ancient India, holy men would chant mantras in an attempt to control the weather. In ancient Great Britain, witches and druids would cast spells and on the American continent, the Indians would do rain dances. Even in the late 1800s, it was a very popular view in Europe that if they shot cannons into the sky, it could cause it to rain. And then in the last century, they have and continue to try to control the weather by what they call seeding the clouds, which involves flying over the clouds and dropping chemicals into them like like uh, silver iodide in an attempt to get them to rain. But as all of the hurricanes and droughts and floods and blizzards and tornadoes continually remind us, we cannot control the weather. And you know what? We fear what we can't control. We fear what we can't control. Which explains why the last few months have been so hard for so many of us. First, there was the coronavirus, then the stock market crash, then the surge in unemployment, 
And then recently, of course, the killing of George Floyd and the riots in the streets that ensued after that. These are like storms in our lives. They come suddenly. We're unprepared. And they come intensely. Sometimes it's a literal natural disaster. Maybe it's the death of a loved one or the loss of a job. Maybe it's a serious illness. Maybe it's a car accident. But like a storm, all of a sudden, something hits and we're out of control and we fear. Last week, we looked at the parable that Jesus told, the very familiar parable of the seeds and the sower and the fields. And we said that that parable was about how God's word is received by different people depending upon the state of their hearts. And remember that Jesus said that the seeds that fell on the rocky soil are like those people who receive the word willingly and even seem to believe. But then after a period of time, they fall away. Matter of fact, Jesus says in a time of testing, they fall away. What appeared to be faith in Jesus fails the test of authenticity. Well, that's what storms do to life. They test us. A time of testing is what Jesus' disciples experienced here on the Sea of Galilee on this ill-fated boat trip. Three of the four Gospels record this event. Matthew and Mark tell us about it, and they emphasize different aspects of the story and include things, statements that are made and things that, that Luke doesn't tell us. Mark, as a matter of fact, tells us that this happened at the end of a very long day of Jesus doing ministry. He had been preaching to large, very large crowds. He was doing miracles, and he was tired, weary at the end of this day. And this, what the story that takes place here, as Luke records it, takes place at night. Jesus invites his disciples to get into one of the large fishing boats, probably, that was there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and invites them to cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, when we hear Sea of Galilee, we think of a, probably a larger body of water than it was because seas are usually large bodies of water, like the Mediterranean Sea. But this is really a lake. As a matter of fact, you'll notice in the ESV it calls it a lake. It's probably, if you were to compare it to a lake you might know, if you know the Finger Lakes up in New York State, if you took one of the largest Finger Lakes, that's about the same size as the Sea of Galilee, although not long and narrow like those lakes are, but more rounded, but it's about the same size as that lake, as the largest of those lakes. But interesting that Jesus needed to get away. We point this out often. He was tired. Long day of dealing with people and teaching and doing miracles. He was weary. Physically, emotionally, spiritually tired. He was so tired, as we're going to see, that he was able to sleep through a violent storm at sea. And one commentator pointed out, and I think you don't want to miss this, is that in this event, more than so many other events of his life, you see the clear contrast between his full humanity and his full divinity. 
both God and man. As a man like you and me, after a day like that, he was tired, weary, needed to get away, to rest and refresh. But we're also gonna see in his weariness, in his humanity, he acts with omnipotence as the son of God. And we'll look at that in a minute. In verse 23, it says, after they had sailed for a while, a windstorm came down on the lake. The Greek word that's used there for windstorm meant a whirlwind, a furious storm. It's the word they used for hurricanes. The word that Matthew uses in his account of this event literally meant a great shaking of the sea. So just the gospel writers are trying to impress upon you how bad this storm was, how violent it was. The Sea of Galilee was and still is notorious for these kinds of storms that would come suddenly and come with great destruction. If you just look at the topography of the area, the Sea of Galilee was 700 feet below sea level. In other words, below the level of the Mediterranean Sea. 700 feet below sea level, and it was surrounded by hills and mountains. And so it was like a big bowl. And what would happen is as these winds would come off the Mediterranean Sea and they'd come over the mountains and get cooled and then they would come into this big bowl and it'd act like a funnel. And you know what happens when water goes into a funnel, it whirlwinds. And that's where these instant and powerful storms would come from. And it says, Luke tells us, that the boat was filling with water and they were in danger in his very understated way. They were in danger. Matter of fact, they were fighting for their lives. The boat was swamped. It was sinking. And the disciples were doing all they could to keep themselves alive. But when they had done all that they could, and they were in great panic and desperation, they go and wake up Jesus. And they say, Master, Master, we're perishing. Keep in mind that at least four of these disciples were lifelong experienced fishermen. Maybe as many as seven. We don't know what all the disciples did for a living. And it's possible that seven of these 12 disciples had been, at least for part of their lives, fishermen. But the four that we know about, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they had spent their whole adult life working as fishermen on this very Sea of Galilee. They had seen the worst of the storms of the Sea of Galilee. And these are the men who are crying out in desperate fear and panic. Just imagine how bad this storm was. Being lost at sea, the fear of drowning is probably one of the most primal fears that we have as human beings. The idea that you're sinking down into a depth of water and you're getting farther and farther from the top and you can't breathe and you can't get back to the top there probably isn't a more intense fear that most people can imagine. Well, Luke tells us simply that Jesus got up after they wakened him. He stood up and he rebuked, is the word he used. He, re- he rebuked the high waves and the powerful wind. Mark tells us in his gospel that his actual words were, Peace, be still. And both the wind and the waves instantaneously stopped. 
Now just think about that for a minute. How many laws of physics were broken in that moment? That the winds could stop on a dime, that the waves would stop on a dime. Even the idea that, I mean, if you've ever tried to carry a bowl of water that was full across the room, you know that when you stop, that doesn't stop the waves. Often you spill because the waves continue. But both the wind and the waves stopped instantaneously. And all three gospel writers emphasize the silence and calm that ensued in a moment. Can you imagine? After this violent storm, all the noise and the flashing and the waves, in a moment, it's like it never happened in a moment. You can imagine the eerie calm and silence on the water. How surreal it must have been in that moment. Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who existed in eternity. And not only is he the Son of God equal to the God the Father, but he, according to John chapter 1, is the creator. He was actually the person of the three persons in the Godhood who brought the creation into existence. And here he displays his full sovereign power and authority over all of his creation. But let's get back to the disciples. This was a time of testing. Just like the time of testing that Jesus talked about in the parable of the rocky soil, this is the time of testing for the faith of the disciples. That's why Jesus, in that calm, surreal, still moment, while their jaws are down at their ankles, he says to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? He was teaching them a lesson. And what are the lessons of this storm? These are lessons that they were to learn in that moment that we need to learn in this moment. What were the lessons of the storm? Every storm has lessons. That's what scripture teaches. Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71. This is what it says. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Affliction Storms are intended to teach us about who God is and what he's done. And so what's the first lesson for the disciples in that day and us in our day? The Lord can stop the storm. The obvious first lesson. The Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ can stop the storm no matter what storm we're talking about. He can stop it. You know, it's interesting that the storm on the Sea of Galilee did prove that the disciples had faith. They had some faith. It might have been as small as a mustard seed, but they had faith. Because what did they do when they got to the end of all their efforts to try to save themselves? What did they do? They ran to Jesus. Remember, that's what we said about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, when he was in prison, fearing for his life and doubting about Jesus and what he was hearing about the ministry of Jesus, what did he do? He sent disciples to Jesus to ask Jesus the question, to get assurance from Jesus for his doubts and his fear. And that's exactly what these disciples do. They've done all they can. They're at the end of the rope. They should have gone sooner. But they went to Jesus. Because they knew he could do something. They knew he could do something. They had seen him teach with unique divine authority. 
They had seen him prove his power and authority over sickness and disease and demons and death itself. They knew he could do something. And Matthew's account tells us that they actually said, Lord, save us. But you know what else? Their dumbfounded astonishment when he spoke to the waves and the wind and it stopped shows us that they didn't believe he could do that much. They had no idea that he could actually stop the storm. They knew he could do something to help them survive. But he didn't know, they didn't know that he could stop the storm. And that's why it says in verse 25, and they were afraid. This is in that moment of stillness when the storm's gone. They were afraid. They weren't afraid of the storm. They were afraid of Jesus. It's that fear, that fear that strikes you at the very core of your being when you walk up to the edge of Niagara Falls. That fear of being in the presence of that kind of intense, immense, infinite power. They feared Jesus. Whatever fear they had of the storm was now dwarfed by their fear of him. And Luke adds, and they marveled. The word means to be utterly astonished, to be awestruck by what they had just witnessed. And they said, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? It's this strange mixture of genuine fear in the face of great power and glory along with a reverent fear towards the person at the center of all of this glory and this astonishment at who he is and what he has done that leads born-again hearts to bow a knee and worship before him. And this is what it means to grow in faith. Storms in your life are a test. And the purpose of the test is that you would grow in your faith. And this is what happens when you grow in your faith, is that your view of who Jesus is gets much bigger. You see more of his glory, more of his power, more of his authority. That's what growth in faith is. Seeing him more for who he is and seeing more for what he has done. And that's what happened there on that still lake in that day. So what's the lesson of the storms for us? Jesus is the Lord of all creation. And he has the power and authority to stop every storm that you're going to face in life. So what do you do? Cry out to him. Don't be like the weak faith disciples who waited until they had done everything in their experience and their training and their ability to try to save themselves before they ran and woke up Jesus. Go to Jesus in the storms of life, knowing that he has the power and authority to stop your storm. I don't deal with a lot of fears in life. I've been blessed that way. I've lived a pretty sheltered life. But one that I've had most of my life, which is very mild compared to some people, but I do have a bit of claustrophobia. I don't like tight, confined spaces. I get very uncomfortable in situations like that because I feel trapped. And I think what it is, if I can trace it at all, I can trace it back to a TV show when I was a very young child that showed somebody being buried alive. Wow. To this day, I think of that show, it gives me the willies. And so this idea of being in this 
space that's no bigger than my body and being trapped and not being able to get out. But you know what? If you were to take me, you and I were to go and you were to put me in a box that was no bigger than my body, like a coffin, and shut the top of it, and if I knew you, loved you, and trusted you, and I told you that when you hear me shout, please let me out, I could stay in there a long time. If I knew that when I cried to you, you could open it and let me out because I trust you. That's the first lesson that Jesus is trying to get across to these disciples. Come to me. I can stop any storm that you're facing. What's the second lesson? Not only can Jesus stop the storm, the second lesson is that he plans the storm. He plans the storm. Did you notice that it was Jesus' idea to cross the Sea of Galilee? He's the one who said to the disciples, let's get in a boat and go out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee knowing all along that the storm was going to hit. Now, even if you have a very weak view of the sovereignty of God or the sovereignty of Christ as the Lord of creation, even if you have a very weak view, and some Christians have too weak of a view of his sovereignty, but even if you have a weak view which says, well, he doesn't control or plan the future, but he knows the future, even if that's all the more power and authority over the future that you're going to grant to Jesus in your view of him, wouldn't he make a great meteorologist? Wouldn't you love to have a weatherman that knows exactly what the weather's going to be tomorrow and can tell you in advance? But if that were the only level of Jesus' sovereignty in this situation, he would have said, you know what, disciples, I'd love to get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, but I know there's a storm coming, and I'm never wrong about that, so let's go shelter in place over here in this cave overnight, and then we'll go tomorrow when the weather's nicer. But no, he not only knew the storm was coming, he planned for the storm to come. It was a test, and he's the tester. He designed this test for his disciples so that they could assess the level of their faith and thereby grow in faith. That's what was happening. The rest of Scripture makes it very clear that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. To quote our Westminster Confession of Faith, our denominational doctrinal standard in chapter 3, it says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. That's why Jesus could sleep in the boat while the storm was raging. That's why Jesus could sleep in the boat while the, while the boat was sinking. Because he designed this test. It was part of his plan from the beginning. This storm was as much a part of God's plan for all of human history as was the flood in Noah's day and the parting of the Red Sea in Moses' day. And the same intention in the heart of Jesus behind this test, this, this storm that he put into his disciples' life is the same intention that he has in every storm in your life, which is to reveal and strengthen your faith. And I don't know of a better gift that your Lord could give you than a stronger faith. 
Without the storm on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples' view of Jesus would not have been stretched and expanded. They would not have seen him as the eternal Son of God who created all the heavens and the earth. And their faith would have remained weak. 1 Peter chapter 1 says that now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials, testings, storms are intended to refine your faith like gold. Or as Paul says in Romans 5 verses 3 and 4, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. That's what the storms of life do for your faith. And that brings us to our third and final lesson from this passage. Not only can the Lord stop all the storms in your life, not only does he plan all the storms in your life, but the Lord is in every storm that you will go through in your life. The Lord didn't just send the disciples out into the storm to test them. He was with them. At the end of his ministry, Jesus promised his disciples that not only would he be with them forever, always, which is an amazing promise that he made to his disciples, but he also promised that that presence with his disciples was going to be greater and intensified after he was crucified, raised from the dead, and ascended to the Father because he was going to send his Holy Spirit. Listen to this, these promises in John chapter 14 and, verse, and chapter 16, beginning in verse 16 of John 14. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then over in chapter 16, in verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That amazing promise to his disciples is more thoroughly lived out for us who live after the resurrection and the ascension and the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the church. Because we have the Spirit of Christ with us and in us at all times. And Christ is fulfilling his promise to always be with us until the end of the age. Why is he with us? This is the most important point. Don't miss this one. Why is he with us? It's because of the cross. That's why he could make the promise. That's why... We could know for sure in every circumstance that he is with us because he paid for our sins at the cross. 
And when he was raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead for our justification before our holy God. Because God now looks upon us as fully innocent, forgiven, even righteous. Because we are robed in the righteousness of Christ and Christ has taken the filthy robes of our sinfulness away when he died for our sins at the cross. That's why Jesus is with us always. In every circumstance, especially in the storms. It's the blood of Christ. And it's important that you hold on to that in the storm. Because in the storm, I guarantee you, much of the time, you're not going to feel like Jesus is with you. Much of the time, you're going to feel like Jesus is far off. He's not hearing your prayers. Matter of fact, the Psalms tell us it's entirely fine to recognize, to acknowledge the fact that he feels far off in the midst of the storm. He feels far away. But as J.C. Ryle has said, sight and sense and feeling make men very poor theologians. Chew on that a second. I'll say it again. Sight and sense and feeling make men very poor theologians. Not seeing the Lord in the dark times. Not feeling his presence when things are difficult and the storms of life hit. That cannot and does not in any way negate, take away from the fact. The historical objective fact that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who died to take away the sins of God's people once and for all. And that historical objective fact is what you cling to like an anchor in the midst of the storms of life. No one can take that away from you. No one can undo that. It's accomplished. It is finished, Jesus said at the cross. And that's what you cling to. Not your feelings, not your perceptions, not what you see, not what you hear, but what you know to be true, objectively, historically true, the cross of Jesus Christ. I came across a very familiar hymn. And one of the problems with singing hymns repeatedly, ones that we know well and we sing them often in worship, is that we go, grow kind of numb to their message and we don't really pay attention to what we're singing and the truth of the hymn goes right over our heads or by us. This is a great, well-known hymn, but boy, in light of preparing this message, the words hit me like a ton of bricks this week. Listen carefully to what the words of my hope is built on nothing less truly say here. Listen to this. My hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. Historical, objective, true gospel facts about the cross and the resurrection of Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Listen to this. His oath or his promise, his oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. That's faith. 
And that's what he's trying to teach us in the storms of life. No matter what you see, no matter what you hear, or no matter what you feel in this life, you hold on to this promise by faith, the one that David articulated so well in that, again, very familiar and very beloved psalm, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What are the storms that are going on in your life right now show you about your faith? Where is your faith, Jesus would ask you? How does it measure up? It's the storms that are going to show us his glory. And as we see his glory and experience his power, our faith grows. If you look with faith you will see that the Lord Jesus Christ can stop any storm that you're going to go through in life. Secondly, you're going to see that he not only can stop it, but he has planned that storm as a test to strengthen your faith from before the foundation of the world. And thirdly and finally, no matter what storm he asks you to walk through, he is always there with you in the midst of it. If you see that by faith, your fears will dissipate. Let me close with one more familiar hymn. Listen to these words, to the hymn, Be Still, My Soul. Be still, my soul, your God does undertake to guide your future as he has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and the winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we live in fearful times. There's much darkness and uncertainty around us. And it seems like the church is weak in faith. Lord, I pray that you would show us your glory. Show us your glory in the gospel and strengthen our faith and trust in you that we might be a light in the midst of this dark and stormy time. And may other lost, hopeless sinners like we were come to know you as we have come to know you. Strengthen our faith, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.